welcome back. I'm here with Lori Williams. Today, we're going to talk about another interesting topic. So based on you know, two episodes ago, Lori was mentored by Lynn Buchanan, who many of you are already familiar with, but she also had a relationship with Mel Riley, who also taught her a lot, and she worked with him on several different projects, particularly targets that were less conventional. So, Laura, do you want to talk about one of those targets that you worked on with Mel? Yeah, I, you know, I met Mel originally at the very, very first International Remote Viewing Association conference held at the Inn of the Mountain Gods in New Mexico, in southern New Mexico. And I don't remember meeting him. I, it's funny, I have a photo of us together at that conference. And I, I don't have a recollection of meeting him. And he's like, don't you remember when we met? You know? And he actually wrote about our first meeting as part of the foreword to my book, Boundless, that I wrote. Mm -hmm. He wrote the foreword to it. And he talked about the time we, we met first. The thing about Mel is that Mel was the very first soldier inducted into the newly formed psychic spying unit. And he was the only one with the distinction of serving two tours of duty. And he is just the most amazing guy. He was born in Wisconsin and raised pretty much by the Ho-Chunk Nation, Indians, you know, and he doesn't have a drop of Indian blood. He's Irish heritage, but he was raised from a small boy. I mean, they they didn't raise him, but they he was, you know, with them all the time. They taught him and he was very revered and accepted as a Ho-Chunk brother, you know, within the tribe. And so when he and I really when I feel like our relationship really took off and we became really dear friends and he became such a close mentor to me, I knew I could call Mel with any kind of weirdness, any high strangeness, and Mel would explain it to me or he would totally relate to it. And I didn't feel at all judged or, or that, you know, I was getting too woo woo or too weird, you know, Mel just was right there with me. So the, the first project that we worked on together was on an incident called the Kinross incident. And it was, it had to do with a situation that occurred in Madison, Wisconsin. There was an Air Force base there and they saw this blip on their radar that they didn't know what it was. So they scrambled a jet to intercept the blip. They watched the jet approaching the blip on the radar and they came together and then vanished. Both the blips disappeared. So they sent another plane out and I believe that one also disappeared, if I remember correctly. Oh, the plane disappeared? Yeah. The aircraft, like a U.S. military aircraft vanished. Yeah. And these planes were interesting because they were silver, but they had these black, weird kind of designs on them that almost looked like a jaguar or a shark or something painted on the side of the, like on the nose of the plane. Mm -hmm. And so remote viewers are, are purposely kept blind to what they're viewing. So they're not influenced by their prejudices or their stereotypes or things like that. So the only thing that I was told was the target is an event. Describe the target. What year was this incident? Oh, gosh, I think it happened in 1954. But take that with a grain. It was in the 50s, 1950s. Okay. All right. So you were viewing... Historical. Yes, so I'm, yeah, so I'm viewing retroactively and viewing a historical, but it doesn't matter because all time is present, right? So all I was told is the target's an event, describe the target. So of course, you don't have any idea what kind of, you know, could be anything. So I started viewing and I drew the plane with, with the black emblem on it very accurately. And then I was continuing to view and I perceived that two objects did come together 
you know, and, and I was trying to, to view what happened. I felt like one kind of swallowed the other, but when I went inside the other one, I was in this huge round room and there were these beings and they were uniformed, but they were, they were not human. And they, and this, the interesting thing is that at this point in my life, I just, I had never thought much about UFOs or aliens or anything. You know, I came from a missionary background and that just wasn't part of our, our day-to-day thought processes. And so I'm seeing these beings and, and they're uniformed. And I see the the man that I, I mean, or the being that I would probably consider to be like the captain of the ship or whatever you want to look at, however you want to look at it. And what was interesting was that there were no buttons or dials or anything. It was, it was all pretty smooth, this, this kind of kind of curved dashboard, if you want to call it that. And there were some circles on the dashboard and this being could take his hand and, and he could kind of make, he would wave his hand over this circle and control the whole craft with his conscious mind, with his consciousness. And, you know, of course, none of this was all totally foreign to me, you know, so totally foreign. This was probably back in, I don't know, maybe, maybe like 2000, 2001, 1999, something like that, that I was actually doing the session. And so I, you know, it was a very unusual experience and I'm watching all this and I'm interacting with these beings. And, and, and so then when I finally finished and I found that, that what I, what I found was that the, the final location of this thing was kind of in a trench way deep in the water because it was over the great lakes of the United States, you know, and that they're, they're, are, you know, they're extremely dangerous, especially at certain times of the year. Many, many ships have sunk there, many planes and, and flying, you know, helicopters and things have down, gone down into the water at various times. It's just a really turbulent, dangerous place at certain times of the year for any kind of a vehicle trying to cross them. And so I, I perceived that they ended up in this trench way at the bottom of the ocean. I mean, it's not an ocean, but it's like a mini ocean of the Great Lakes. So then I was contacted and told that Mel Riley had also been a viewer on the same project. And would we like to do a joint presentation on the project at a conference that was coming up? So that's when I really remember getting to know Mel is I, we went to this conference and we, we got together beforehand to spend a few hours going over things and deciding what, how we were going to present it, et cetera. And he looked through my session and he was saying, wow, I'm really, really impressed with your work. You know, it's really detailed. And he was so impressed. And I was, I was all excited that this, you know, prominent, you know, retired military ex- remote viewer was so impressed with my work. And so we did the joint presentation together. And, and then subsequently, we were both tasked on another esoteric target. And this one had to do with Mars. Well, and let of, me stop you, stop you yeah. right there real quick. Two quick questions. On the first target, who tasked you with that? Was it um, I, well, I won't. I, I won't give the name of the person, but it was it was actually a person that was high up in the organization known as MUFON, Mutual okay. UFO Network. Okay. And then the second question is: the beings that you saw, can you describe what they looked like? In my memory, and the best memory that I can give, they were slender and human-like in their body form. You know, in their body form, they had arms, legs wearing a uniform but the head was very different and the and of course the hands didn't look like 
like our hands. I mean, they were shaped like hands, but the the skin was very dark and kind of scaly. That was my, you know, that was what I was seeing was kind of so dark. Kind of like a reptilian look. Or yeah, it was more like a reptilian look, but in a in a more humanoid shape. Did you and, get when you when you remote viewed that the um, did you get a yeah. sense for what actually happened to those aircraft, like the pilots? I didn't. I didn't. I, I did see them. You know, I saw them and I, they had masks on. You know how back in the 50s, they, in flying in those small planes, they, they often had the oxygen masks on, you know, covering their face. And that at first freaked me out because I thought, is that an alien? You know, with this rubbery black thing on. And I was like, oh, my God, what's that? And then I realized that it was a pilot with, his, you know, with the thing on his face. Also, keep in mind, this this session was done so many years ago, and I haven't looked at it since then, you know, so I, my memory, you have to take things with a grain of salt as far as all the details. I, I do have the, the whole, all the paperwork from it still with me, but I just haven't looked at it in a long, long time. So I don't remember all the details, but the thing was, is it really bonded Mel and I to work together in that one. And then we were subsequently tasked with another one in which we both had a very dramatic experience that was identical. We both had the same experience in viewing Mars. And the experience was that we came to these these building-like things that were like obelisks. They were crystals that mm-hmm. just came up out of the ground, and they were set in a circle. And we were in very ancient times in Mars. And these obelisks were actually communication devices. They transmitted and received information. And so my monitor instructed me to go to that which was transmitting to the devices. And I was instantly like in a different dimension. And I was seeing these these beings that were kind of formless. And we jokingly refer to them as the lava lamp people, because you know how the blob in a lava, lava lamp kind of stretches out in the lava lamp, you know, it kind of stretches out. And so it was like, they, they kind of looked, it was almost like I was looking at them through water or through a veil of some sort. But, and so they were kind of amorphous and there were three of them and they were this amazing color of like turquoise blue that was luminescent and glowing. And they were kind of shapeless and just almost, almost cylindrical, but with waves in the cylinder, so to speak. And, and so and when you say another dimension, do you mean like, like a, a higher physical dimension or just another like a parallel universe no a totally different i mean i couldn't even relate to it because it wasn't anything like this reality at all it was all you know it was like being almost like in a void of some sort with a big veil or curtain that i could kind of see through or it was water or something and then there were these beings on the other side of it so i don't know where i was i mean there was no there were no identifying things around like buildings or you know anything where i could say well i was in this room or i was in you know it was yeah it's like trying to determine what the size of something is without any thing yeah. to judge it against right exactly and so and these beings were communicating telepathically and not through language not through a verbal language but just the, everything they were communicating was very clear and it was this concern for the planet and and this love, and they were talking about things that were way over my head scientifically, having to do with waves and frequencies and all sorts of things. And so when the session was over, I was scratching my head, like, how do I write this up in a report? And I, I got paid a significant amount of money to, to do the session. What, what to me at that time was significant, but I, I was this I, also a MUFON project or was this was it? also a MUFON project. And so I was like, okay, do I, how do I write this up. And I was wrote it kind of carefully. 
you know, trying not to sound like a total mad woman, you know, not, you know, not totally insane. And, and so the person who received my report contacted Mel Riley, who was another viewer and who had submitted a very similar report and said, you should call Lori. Well, he knew me. So he calls me and we talk to each other and he's like, tell me exactly what happened and don't hedge anything. Just be real straightforward. So I shared everything with him and he started finishing my sentences. And he was like, and was it like you were looking through a veil or water or something? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, and did it? I was like, yeah. You know, we were just like, oh, yeah. And so we realized we'd had the exact same experience with the exact same information communicated to mm -hmm. us. And so it's a correlation, which is yeah. And he the, said the second best thing you can get. Yeah, he's like, Lori, this is not a this was not a normal session. I mean, this we were being communicated with. After that, I was reading a book. I'm trying to remember the name of the author. It's a female, and she was talking about hosting. She had hosted a meditation class in Hawaii. And she was meditating with a group of women that had come to take her class. And she was in this deep state of meditation. And suddenly she was in this weird void where she was seeing these three amorphous glowing turquoise things. And they were communicating all this concern for the planet. And, da, 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 da. and I was like, oh, my gosh, that sounds exactly what, like what Mel and I had. Since then, I have blind assigned that as a target, that same target, to a number of like top, my top viewers who've been through all the classes and, you know, are doing operational viewing, and they've all had the same exact experience. And the, the interesting thing was that the, these blue beings transmitted a sense of love, like that was overwhelming, the love, the feeling of love was just really, really emotionally moving. And all these viewers will end up in tears going, oh my gosh, there's so much love, you know, and they're crying. I mean, big burly men crying and saying, oh my gosh, the love is like overwhelming, you know? And so that's now seven viewers who viewed this target and had the exact same experience with the crystal obelisk and then these beings and the same message. It's was, just- Was the message to- kind of ancient martians or was it to the, the, the no i felt that the main message is is for the current inhabitants of this planet that that we have to take care of the planet we have to care for this planet that it's that it's very important you know that we're that we are aware of how our choices and our actions affect the whole you know the whole way that the planet functions if that makes sense. And what was the, why was this a target for the client? Personally, I, I think that this particular tasker, we call the, the person who gives you the, the task and is paying for it. I think this, I don't really feel like this was an official MUFON target. I feel like this particular yeah. person really just I know, I know. was curious and just wanted to see what we would get, you know? And so, he I would have gone a different. I would have gone a different way. I, I, I think MUFON can some, sometimes be used as a front for government organizations that want to do this without with some plausible deniability. But yeah. I'm not saying this particular incident. This was, particular but, person was not doing it as as his role in MUFON. It was more like a personal. I'm curious about this, you know, and how much will you charge me to take a look at a target for me, <laughs> kind of a thing. And since we had done some other targets for this particular person, we thought, well, we can, you know, and they turned out well. We thought, well, let's go ahead and do this. And this person was also a personal friend of Mel Riley's. 
That's another reason I accepted it was because he was a good friend of Mel's. So, and Mel, Mel called me one night and said, you know, I'm standing, my sister called me, Mel's telling me, my sister called me and he said, and she's out walking her dog and she lives about four miles from me. And he said, and, and she said, there's a massive ship up in the sky and there's little ships going to and from this ship. And he said, so I came outside and I looked up and I, I can see it too. It's huge. It's just, I've never seen anything like it. And he was just flabbergasted. And I remember that we talked about it for a while, but what I thought was interesting is, okay, if this thing was so massive and he and his sister could both see it and they were a few miles apart. And I can see why you would both be able to see it. If you're only four miles apart or something, you know, and something's yeah. happening in the sky, you're both going to be able to see it. But he's, you know, what I don't understand is how, why didn't, why were there not like gazillions of phone calls? Now they did live in a very remote area that didn't wasn't heavily populated, but still you would think there would be some kind of something somewhere saying this was really an amazing phenomena. Well, and Mel so has I, some some you know developed like you call it ESP remote view whatever skills. Was his sister similar in some way? Again, I'm just I don't know the answer to this, but I'm positing just a hypothesis. Perhaps these skills or abilities enable you to pierce through some sort of a a veil camouflage. Who knows? But I think so. I had a I had an experience many years ago before I ever heard of remote viewing. I was on a walk at like seven p.m. in the summer, so you know it's still light out, and but it's that pretty time of day, you know, where everything's kind of golden. And I was walking around my neighborhood that, and I took this walk every single day when I went in the evening to see the sunset. And so I'm on this walk and I, I look and I see these, these pretty lights, these blue lights kind of off on the horizon. I'm thinking, what are those blue lights in the sky? And I, I keep an eye on it and they, they start to, they move until they're right overhead, but they're going pretty slowly. I think, I don't know how long it took to go from horizon to horizon. It crossed right over my head, right above me. And it was in a triangular shape. And it looked like an outline of blue lights with the sky in the, you know, in the middle. So it, I think it had some kind of a camouflage on it, but you could see the light so clearly. And, and 700 people called into the TV stations and things and reported it. So I wasn't the only one to see it. It was just that kind of like, Three three lights and then kind of like a one central light that's a no, different color. No. no, it was a whole bunch of lights, <clears throat> and they were they were blue. They were a, a, again they were a very beautiful kind of an azure blue color, and they were round and they were in a line that kind of formed almost like an arrowhead shape, and they you know just crossed from one end to the other with the point you know being the the, the foremost thing going forward. So was it a triangle shape or like a boomerang shape? It wasn't a boomerang and, and it wasn't a, exactly, a, it was more like a triangle, but it almost like a, an arrowhead. You know how arrowheads are like a triangle and then they have a little, like a stem, like a trunk of a tree kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. It had a little, it had a little part on the end of it as well. So it was, you know, so it was like a triangle with a, with a part coming down from the base. Have you ever been assigned on any other esoteric targets doesn't have to be ufos it could be yeah i've done dimensional or i've something. done a lot of esoteric targets we usually don't encourage students to do esoteric targets that an esoteric target being a target for which 
probably in your lifetime, there won't be any provable feedback, solid mm -hmm. provable feedback. However, <clears throat> if you look at that definition and you think about like, if there's a missing child and I'm working on the missing child case, if they never find the missing child, that becomes an esoteric target in the sense that I may never get feedback on that target. However, there might be a lot of information that I get that is feedbackable, like the description of the child and the location where the child was abducted and that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So there's always usually some information available to us, you know, on, on almost any esoteric target. And so, yeah, I've been assigned to many esoteric targets and had some phenomenal experiences in almost all of them. One of the in, most interesting ones that I it comes to mind right off the bat was I was I was actually doing a session on a device that would allow for interdimensional communication. That was the target. The only information I was given is the target is a future technology. Describe the target. So I I didn't know what I was viewing. But I perceived this thing and I described it in tremendous detail. And I'm not going to go into that on the show because it's kind of a, it's a pr private thing. Yeah, but right. yeah, I was, I was, I was chomping at the bit to hear more because I'm, a, you know, by training, I'm an electrical engineer. So that would be in signals. So that would. Yeah. And, and the thing too is that, you know, I'm not a mechanical person at all. So mm -hmm. it was really interesting describing the intricate details of how this thing was made and all, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what was really fascinating about this target was that after working on it over several sessions and sending, you know, detailed reports in by the, by the time I was done, there was a point at which I know I was, I was in the middle of my session, the last session, and I was told this is all the information that this person needs. So I ended the session and then all of a sudden this flood of information came just as I was ending the session. And it was like, this is just information for you, you know, don't share this with that, with this person. But the information that came that was for me was that a device like that is completely unnecessary. <laughs> that we do not need a physical mechanical device like that because the human brain is already made for that. And then it went into tremendous detail about how the human brain works, and and it was it was fascinating. It was just fascinating to me. When you say the human brain's not made for that, what sorts of hints the or human knowledge brain is made for that? That's what the human brain is. Well, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I misspoke. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> if the brain's made for that, what? How did they, or it, or whatever had downloaded this information, communicate that? In other words, it. By interdimensional communication, how does the how how would the brain achieve that through remote viewing, astral remote travel? Viewing, yes, when when you go into a when you go into um, a deep remote viewing state, like and even in CRV where we are awake and alert and sitting at a table with paper and pen, you can still slide into that that brain state. That I don't know if it's a brain wave state, but you you slide into this state where you're. You're doing a thing that I personally call toggling the line. I, I kind of have this trademark phrase called surfing the quantum wave, you know, where we're right there and, and you're kind of in between the ability to continue reporting because CRV is an interview and report methodology. The whole goal is let's get information, but, but report it. You know, it's got to be reported. It's got to be recorded. And so 
when you're doing deep in an SCRV session and you're recording what you're getting, you're writing everything down, that can be really hard to continue to do if you go really deep mentally. You know, you're like kind of in a dreamy state and you don't feel like writing anymore. You just kind of want to just visit the target and just sit there and enjoy it, right? But it's kind of why the gateway program didn't take off in the military, right? Which the gateway program was with the Monroe Institute and they were going to use astral projection or they were attempting to use astral projection. But the reason, at least to my knowledge, they didn't use it is because of exactly what you talked about. People were like, wow, I was floating around. I was like, in this office. It was, it was amazing. And the, the story that I've heard was, it was a remote viewer with Ed Dames and Ed Dames said, yeah, but did you like, what can you tell me about the target? They're like, what? Wait, wait, wow, I forgot. <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. And so the the goal, and this is really Ingo Swan, who was, you know, the, the father of, of CRV. Ingo, what his definition of bilocation was, he, and he encouraged true bilocation. And what what his definition was, where the viewer is in two places at once. The viewer is really having excellent sight contact as if he or she were actually present at the site, while at the same time sitting in the chair, writing on the paper. But what he didn't like was when the viewer went too far, and then that's no longer by location because you're no longer in two places at once anymore. You're now 100% at the target, and, and it's like the lights are on, but nobody's home, and you can't get any information from the viewer. That and because and he didn't like it only because he was getting paid by the military to devise a method that they could get military intelligence. And if you can't get the intelligence, then you failed, you know, essentially. <laughs> so so oh, one one thing that I've become aware of recently, and I think this triggered it when you talked about Tom McNear. I was aware that there were six stages of CRV, but I became aware just reading his bio that there was a seventh which was, I think, what they called phonetics. Are you familiar with that or how it works? We we have a, a thing we call P7, which is phase, you know, or stage seven um, that we use all the time. It's different than the phonetics. The phonetical thing, my understanding was, was actually stage eight. <clears throat> and my understanding is that Ingo, after he left the military, continued his exploration of the whole phenomena of CRV and develop further stages, but he just felt that mankind wasn't ready for those stages. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the way that we use P7 in, in our teaching is actually a very simple thing. There are points in which, for I'll give you an example. I had a student who was doing a target and her target was this beautiful Brazilian lady with very dark skin, wearing a gorgeous spangly gold outfit with a big headdress on. And she was dancing and it was nighttime and it was carnival in Brazil. So she's doing her session and she goes, oh, it's the strangest thing. I'm hearing Dancing in the Moonlight, but, you know, that song Dancing in the Moonlight. Well, first she said, oh, I'm hearing Black Magic Woman by Santana. So I tell her to write that down, Black Magic Woman, and put it in quotation marks and to mark it as a P7, because it's not like other information that you get that's just, you know, all over the place and it's coming in really quickly and it's little spurts of information. Suddenly you're hearing a song in your head or a, the, the name of a book or a poem or, you know, or a cliche or a phrase that just kind of comes in out of nowhere 
and seems to have nothing, no correlation. Maybe it doesn't even feel like it's your voice and it doesn't feel like the normal perceptions that you're getting. It's just very different. Is that with a distinct song like that? Is that distinct from an AOL? Like well, a P, what we call is we call P7s are ty- a type of not an AOL. They're a type of what we call a stray cat. An AOL okay. is analytic overlay. So that's okay. like if I get the perception of red, round and rubbery and I say, well, if it's red, round and rubbery, therefore it must be a ball. That's analysis, right? That's coming from the logical mind. But a lot of things that come through to you when you're remote viewing are not coming from the conscious mind. They're coming from your subconscious. So you suddenly remember when you and your dad were playing ball, you suddenly have this memory pop in that you and your dad were playing ball in the driveway one day. And you think, wow, I wonder if the target's a ball game. But it's not coming from logical analysis. But Ingo got tired of trying to explain to students the difference between something that's coming from the conscious mind versus something that's coming from subconscious. So he said he just labeled everything AOL. You know, when I mean, anything that came in that involved a noun or a picture or whatever, but not all those things are AOLs. And they did a lot of experimentation in the military to kind of see how this information comes into the brain and what it means and that sort of thing. So when you have like a song come in, so this woman ended up with two very strong songs in her head, Black Magic Woman dancing in the moonlight. What was her target? It was a Black Magic Woman dancing in the moonlight, right? So, so those were very clear things. One time I was doing a a target that took place in Latin America. And I kept hearing don't cry for me, Argentina in my head, you know, Lynn one time was doing a target and he started hearing Lucy in the sky, Lucy in the sky, Lucy in the sky. And the target was a photograph of, of a pair of hands nice. holding a bunch of diamonds. And so, you know, so it's like these things that come through there, they're just a total different type of information. And we call them P7s in our, in our teaching. Okay. All right. I, I think we've gone like way over the time that you allotted for us. So <laughs> I want to kind of leave the audience with uh, that note. And thank you very much for so graciously spending time with me and, and this audience. So I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Lord. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate you too. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe and I'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.